Hi, everyone. Great to see you. Uh, really great to be back. Oh, Todd, here from, uh, I can't say you're from out of town because of travel shame. Sorry. Todd is not here. I have no idea who Todd is. It's great to see all of you who live in Portland. Um, welcome. Uh, speaking of travel shame, I just got back from a kind of midwinter vacation that was one part rest to kind of let my soul catch up to my body after the marathon that was 2020 for all of us and for our church and a little bit of a writing break as well to finish up my next book, but was really in large part to pray and prep for the coming season of our life together as a church. Today we kick off a new teaching series that we're calling Future Church. We are, as you all know, in this odd moment where we are in the worst phase of the virus. A lot of people are still dying. And yet, the vaccine is here, and um, we're kind of through the bend in the curve, and there's light at the end of the tunnel. And we're not very far away from coming out of lockdown and back together as a church. There's no hard date set right now. We're in a weekly conversation. But in theory, as soon as next month, the plan is to start to reopen as a church for those that are ready. And, you know, at the beginning of the year, actually in pre-gathering prayer, right down here before our time together, when we were just waiting on God, I felt the Spirit speak a very simple word to me, and that was just that it's time to dream again. And I felt like that was a word for our church as a whole, not necessarily for me. You know, um, there is a time to just survive. I think of that line in Ecclesiastes or that famous poem, like, for everything there is a time. And there's a time to just, like, get through it. And we don't need, like, an aspirational kick in the arm. We just need to, like, get to bedtime or whatever. That's okay. Restauranteurs in Portland have a saying right now, survival is the new success. Meaning if you're a restaurant and you're still around, you are crushing it. I think something like that is just true for being a human being in Portland right now, much less a church. We're still here. I feel like we should just give a round of applause to Jesus and say thank you, yes, that we're still here and we're still together. And in a time of survival, really the call is to persevere. The word that we set before you for our, the last few months, last six months of our time together was James 1. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If your criterion for a good life is to feel happy, then the last year was likely low in the totem pole of your years. But if your criterion is to grow and mature into a person who is like Jesus, then the last 12 months was for a lot of us the chance of a lifetime. And we persevere our way into maturity. We don't read books or listen to teachings into maturity. We persevere into maturity. And there's a time for that. And we're still in that season of perseverance as we hang tight to the end of this virus. But we are coming out of it. Spring is on the horizon in more ways than one. Yesterday in my Sabbath walk through Forest Park, I saw the first buds on a maple tree and I just felt giddy on the inside. And you know, spring is when new seeds germinate and grow into new life. So what we wanna do over the next two months between now and Easter is dream. Dream together about our future together as a church, about the kind of church that we want to become and the kind of followers of Jesus that we want to grow and mature into on the other side of COVID-19. President Biden's slogan for America right now is build back better. And yes, that is 100% PR, I'm sure invented by a marketing department in Minnesota or something. But there's a sentiment in there that I think is right for our moment. How do we not just come back together as a church, 
but could we dream beyond normal? Because normal wasn't all that great for a lot of us. How do we come back better into the future that God has for us and for the church in the West? To start, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 80. Psalm 80. And when you are there, please stand with me for the reading of Scripture. You know, we stand to honor God with our bodies to set all that we are before God as an offering and to honor what we are about to read as more than just ancient Hebrew poetry, but as scripture. I'm not going to exegete this. This was not designed to be exegeted. It was designed to be experienced. It's not subject material for a lecture or even for a sermon. It's the cry of a heart in pain. And I, I want to read it over you, but I want to invite you to pray it in the quiet of your heart with me. Psalm 80. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to let the prayer come alive in our heart. Hear us, shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph like a flock. You who sit enthroned between the cherubim. Shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea. It shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the field feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the branch you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. The son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty, Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Take a seat. Just the other day, I was with my dear friend Dave Lomas from San Francisco. Um, I'm too old to have a best friend, but I have a very close one. 
and, um, or too cool or something, I don't know. Are you, is like an, do you age out of a best friend? Is it like not an option? No? Even for guys, not to gender stereotype? You can still, okay, maybe, whatever. I don't know what we are. I don't know what he thinks we are. But I was with my very dear friend, and uh, we're doing this series, Future Church, in collaboration with Reality San Francisco, which is kind of like our sister church down in the Bay Area. And so we were working on this together, and uh, as an aside, nothing to do with the series, he told me this great story, pastoral story, where he had been invited to, by a Jesus-following Jewish family in the church, to a traditional Jewish circumcision um, ceremony. And if you know anything about the traditional ceremony, it's on day eight, and it's not done by a doctor at the hospital. It's done by a, a rabbi or a mohel at the home. And so he was there in the living room with the little boy, and right at the moment when the rabbi like, cut the foreskin off and the baby started to cry, the rabbi in a tender voice said, I'm sorry, little one, but being a Jew is painful. And with great respect to the Jewish people and their history, there is a truism in there for all of us. Being in the people of God is painful at times. We just read of that pain in Psalm 80. That was not a feel-good, like, the best is yet to come kind of psalm. It was closer to lament. If you are reading, but it's not just in Psalm 80, it's all the way through the library of scripture. If you are reading through the Bible in a year, we just finished reading of the patriarchs in Genesis and Exodus and the stories. And in story after story, the moment that Noah or Abraham or Moses or whoever make that decision to follow God, immediately in story after story, they start to face challenges. It's like rocks just start to get thrown back. Life does not get easier if anything harder. And we, the people of God, face a number of challenges in the coming season. Yes, we are coming back together, praise God, but to a new normal. The cultural landscape has shifted in the aftermath of COVID-19 and the election cycle. Not that the pre-COVID world was all roses, but COVID intensified and accelerated the march of secularism on both the left and the right, and the corrosive and compromising effect of secularism on the church in both the left and the right. And with this new moment comes an array of challenges for us as followers of Jesus. Let me just name eight. It will not take very long. Number one is individualism. We are living through the hollowing out of American society. Robert Putnam, the sociologist from Harvard, who's famous for his book a number of years ago, Bowling Alone, about the decline of community in America over the last half a century, over the last few years has done all sorts of research on the reality that now the current stat is 40% of Americans have one to zero confidence. We're moving toward a number where half of our country literally does not have a single person to process pain with. Health experts say loneliness is the greatest epidemic of our time. The autonomy of Western individualism has been bought at a very high price. And this is a major challenge for the church because we're a church, right? We are by definition a family or a community, but we've been formed by a culture of be true to yourself, you do you, speak your truth, a culture where most relationships are transactional, from the current fad, those of you in a business like that, where your workplace is becoming your community and we have like foosball and all the things that you can live upstairs and make work your whole life. I wonder if there's an agenda in that at all. Never mind that if you don't perform at said community, you're fired. 
not exactly a safe place for intimacy, to an app like Tinder and hookup culture where sex itself, that deep form of intimacy, is perverted into a transactional way to, quote, get your needs met, but again, if you perform. It's no surprise that the signs of the hollowing out of community are all around us. As human beings, we ache for loving relationships with family. But as a mentor said to me recently, quote, intimacy only resides in the safety of commitment. You can have autonomy or you can have intimacy. Pick. How do we, in a culture that is designed to form us into authentic selves with transactional choice architecture of relationships, live together in a thick web of loving relationships as brothers and sisters in the family of God? Second challenge, idolatrous ideologies. We live in the age of ideology. If you don't believe me, sign into Twitter on both the left and the right. Ideas that started out as theories about the human condition have turned into quasi-religious metaphysics by which people derive an identity and a sense of belonging to a community, a sense of self-justification, a moral and ethical vision, and a lens by which people view everything. They have turned, in the language of the Old Testament, into idols or pseudo-gods. The great ache of the last year for me as a pastor, and I'm sure for a lot of you, has been to see so many followers of Jesus in our church and all across our nation drawn away by the gravitational pull of ideology on the left and the right. And ideologies, no matter how noble, are secular attempts to usher in the kingdom of God without God. How do we stay faithful to orthodoxy, to the great tradition of church, or in just more New Testament language, to the way of Jesus and Jesus himself in a day and age when so many of our friends are walking away from the faith. Third challenge is moral relativism. For all of the talk about tolerance, tolerance in our city, the ascendant left, in my humble opinion, or maybe it's not that humble, but in my strong opinion, is, is even more rigid and judgmental and angry than the raging right ever was a moral logic rooted in Foucaultian postmodernism that basically says be true to yourself with the one caveat, these are nice kind people, of as long as it doesn't harm, any well, harm anyone, that just doesn't work very well in a pluralistic society because harm requires an agreed upon definition of good and evil. To call a behavior harmful or hateful or to call a behavior loving means you have to actually have knowledge of what is good or bad for a person. Love in scripture is not defined as it is often in our city as desire, definitely not as lust, or even as a nice warm feeling about someone, though there's truth in all of that. But love is defined by Jesus as to give your life for the good of another, to will the good of another ahead of your own. You cannot love someone, you cannot will the good of someone unless if you know what is good and what is evil which is exactly what our culture does not have. Now, this is not a new problem. America has always been a pluralistic nation. That's not scary. I kind of enjoy it, in all honesty. There's a, there's a sharpening to my moral lens through it. But it's more acute than ever as the moral consensus, in particular around human sexuality and gender, but a lot of other issues as well, is fragmenting into tribal chaos with one moral vision at war with a dozen other splinter groups. 
How do we stay true to Jesus' mental maps of reality and honor God, not just with our sexuality, but with all of our body and with all of our life? God, here I am in offering. Romans 12, right? True and proper worship, all that I am, holy and pleasing to you. Number four is the digital revolution. We've been talking as a church for years about the smartphone and social media and the dangers therein to our spiritual formation. As Ronald Rollheiser put it, I quote this all the time, quote, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. But in recent years, it's turned a darker shade. The problem is not just distraction and addiction, as if that's not enough, but the rise of tribalism, of groupthink, of digital algorithms that create echo chambers, of conspiracy theories, of truth decay, of cancel culture, and of a torrent of anxiety and outrage. People are so scared, so mad, and so tribal that you can't even have a conversation anymore without you say one wrong word and you trigger that inner brain sorting you into the enemy category. Friendships are ending, families are splitting apart, and the church is not immune. How do we live in peace in an age of anxiety and function and follow Jesus' call to be peacemakers in an age of outrage? On that note is the challenge of political polarization. Sociologists tell us that due in large part to social media, we are more divided as a nation than we've been since the Civil War. The extremes have intimidated the center. As Barry Weiss said in her open letter of resignation in the New York Times, which by the way, if you've not read that, Google it, will take you three minutes to read it. Absolutely fantastic. She writes at one point, being a centrist should not require bravery. She was talking about journalism and politics, but there's a similar challenge to us for us as followers of Jesus. Our allegiance is first and foremost to the kingdom of God, not to the nation state of America, and to the multi-ethnic family of God, not to our own tribe. How do we live and love when we are caught in the middle of a cultural civil war that is winner take all? A war that is tiring on the soul and the body. Challenge six is exhaustion. We live in what Byung Chul Han called the burnout society, where people tend to oscillate back and forth between online outrage and then a numbing escapism into the digital ether. What the ancients called acedia is a sin that we have lost consciousness of in the West. They also called it, the nickname for it was the noonday demon. What they meant by acedia, or the noonday demon, was a kind of mild burnout or low energy, a listlessness and distractibility, a kind of mild depression and a lack of spiritual zeal and fervor. Cue the just mindless scrolling through Instagram late into the night. As people have long said, the, dis the utopia we live in is becoming a dystopia, but it's less 1984 and it's more Brave New World. It's less Blade Runner and it's more Joaquin Phoenix Her. Right? It's this mild kind of acedia. How many of us are just too tired to live well? How do we keep our soul alive and vibrant and full of passion for life in the kingdom with Jesus? On the flip side of that is the challenge of careerism. 
The gap is growing between the haves and the have-nots, between urban and rural, between professional and not, and this is very sad. And for those that are more in the haves, urban, professional kind of the world, career has become a kind of cult that people give their soul over to. As a result, the soul is vulnerable not just to burnout, but to performative identity and anxiety and ambition and greed and all sorts of compromise. How do we do work with a theology behind our work where what we do every day matters and do it for the common good, but from a place of contribution and love? Finally is injustice which is really the great social issue of our time. The growing income equality and all sorts of other forms of inequality is new for some groups, but very old for many, even in this room today. The fallout of social Darwinism is all around us. And although there is much talk right now about social justice, which I am so grateful for, there's often a jarring difference between the secular vision of social justice and Jesus' vision of social justice. It's not the social justice of a Micah or an Amos or an Isaiah or a Jeremiah or a Jesus or many of the saints down through history. And history is full of cautionary tales of those who become the very evil they set out to fight. How do we do justice in such a way that we do not become the oppressor? This is not an exhaustive list by any means, and I'm just here to cheer you up, by the way, this morning. But these are just a few of the major challenges that we face in the coming season as a church. And yet, I am full of hope for the future, not just of our church, but the church in the West. The church is exploding around the world. Just, I need to say that on a more regular basis. We're so American-centric. The church is, of Jesus is doing really well. It might not feel that way if you like read Facebook and you're an American, but... On the whole, the global historic Jesus, Church of Jesus, is on the move. Growth, expansion, it's exploding, in particular in Southeast Asia, in China, in Iran. And the church is often at her best when cultural hostility is at its worst. Now, I don't, I don't want to romanticize it because hostility tends to make a smaller church but a stronger one. It tends to make the committed more committed and the nominal walk away. That is sad, and we have to grieve that. Christendom wasn't all bad, but that's not all bad either. You know where the church is likely? I just read this fascinating article by a secular source a few weeks ago. The church is likely growing the fastest in the world right now in Iran. Even though it is full and illegal to proselytize, illegal to gather as followers of Jesus, some argue it's actually the fastest church growth movement in church history, even more than the house church movement in China. Now, we're not facing anything that dire in the U.S., praise God, just mean people online or whatever, but praise God. But the same principle holds true. This could be our finest moment. This could be the moment not of our death, but of our rebirth. As Faulkner once said, it's hard believing, but disaster seems to be good for people. What if we could flip this moment around from one of anxiety to one of possibility? From, oh no, like individualism and ideology and Foucaultian quotes on every hallway at Lincoln High School. That's a true story, by the way, which my son did not end up going to for that reason and more. And conspiracy theories and angry people everywhere to how could this cultural moment and even the hostility that is latent in it, how could it catalyze the best impulses of the Spirit of God in us from anxiety to possibility? But to see possibility become a reality would require something like what the ancients called a rule of life. 
I'm currently reading The City of God by Augustine, which is the kind of book you read over a few years, not over a few weeks. Um, it's widely considered one of the best books ever written and one of the most difficult to read. It was written in the fourth century after the fall of Rome, which was a time of great fear all around the world. Augustine was in North Africa, not in Italy, but it was still a time of great fear. Imagine if Washington DC was destroyed and America literally fell apart. Imagine the fear that would prompt, not just for Americans, but for all of the world. Like if America's not safe, nobody is. I'm not saying that's going to happen. It's just a hypothetical scenario. A few weeks ago, it felt like not all that hypothetical. The Roman Empire had been on the rise for over a thousand years, and now it was in decline and disarray. In that moment, the lines were clearer than ever before between what the New Testament calls the world and the church, and what Augustine called the city of man and the city of God. And in the city of God, it's really a dream of the future church. From it and other works like it and other thinkers like Augustine came the movement of monasticism where followers of Jesus started to band together in tighter bonds than ever before to live as islands of order in a sea of chaos, as people of love and joy and peace in a time of great fear and violence and tribalism. And many very smart people, far ahead of my own, have drawn parallels between the fourth century and the fall of the Roman Empire and the state of the West today. And while I have no idea if the West is past its zenith or just in a rough patch, I very much pray for the latter, I do believe that the future of the church is, it's neo-monastic, meaning not that we should all run off and join a monastery, but meaning there's something of that impulse in the spirit to kind of a way of life where we're closer together, not further apart, where we're grounded above all in quiet prayer and in justice and in love and where we zig the culture zag and we live as a counterculture to the world at large. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, after his time at Finkenwald, which was an intentional community he started in an underground seminary, he set up to train pastors to resist the Third Reich, basically a, a monastery without that label. He said, the renewal of the church will come from a new type of monasticism, which has only in common with the old an uncompromising allegiance to the Sermon on the Mount. It is high time men and women banded together to do this banded together. For those of us who can't run off and become a monk or a nun, I can't, the way that non-monks and nuns and dads like myself have done this down through history is through what the ancients called a way of life, and then later the more popular language became a rule of life. Now, if you are new to that language, please note it's rule of life, singular, not rules for life, plural, it's not a list of rules. The original Latin word was regula, which is where we get English words like regular and regulation. There's a, it means a straight piece of wood. There's a lexicographical debate over the origins, but scholars argue that it was most likely the word used for a trellis in a vineyard. So think of Jesus teaching in John 15, his most important teaching on spiritual formation, on the process by which we become more like him in, that, in the language of that agrarian metaphor, that we bear much fruit. It's that you are like a branch 
branch in the vine. And so early Christians were really attuned to that metaphor, to John 15, and said, all right, let's think about that metaphor. For a vine to bear fruit, it has to have some kind of a trellis, right? Otherwise, it will bear a fraction of the fruit that it's capable of. It will be vulnerable to disease, to predators, to wild animals. It will grow in the wrong direction. It will get all screwed up. So we need some kind of a trellis, some kind of a support structure to index it in the right direction, to guard and to guide it into the maximum amount of fruit. In the same way, followers of Jesus, for us to, in Jesus' own language, to abide in the vine and bear much fruit, we need a trellis. We need a kind of life structure to create space to abide. And that's what a rule of life is. It is a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that create space for us to abide, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what he would do if he were us, as we live in alignment with our deepest desires and from that lifestyle live in peace. Andy Crouch defines it as a set of practices to guard our habits and guide our lives. As you may or may not know, our long-term goal that we're, you know, two years into or whatever, is to redesign our church around a rule of life. Not only do we want you, as an individualist, to have a rule of life that is specific to your life stage and your personality and the invitations of God in this season of your spiritual journey, but we want to have a rule of life for Bridgetown Church as a whole, granted one that is more open and flexible and a little bit more ambiguous, but a kind of this is how we follow Jesus together rule of life that is this is what it means to be a part of Bridgetown Church. Not just I come on Sunday, but I follow Jesus this way with these people. I think that what doctrinal statements were to churches in the past era of denominationalism under Christendom, rules of life will become to churches in the present and future era of exile under secularism. And on purpose, we are doing this over a few years one drip at a time, because for it to work, it can't come down from, quote, you know, on high from myself and the elders. Here's our webpage with our rule of life for all of you to live by. It has to be the result of all of us listening together to the spirits desiring through our desire. We have to get past our survival instincts and all of our defense mechanisms or our antinomian kind of spirit to the deepest desire in our spirit that is generated by the spirit of God in us to be with and become like and do all that Jesus would have us do. So here's the plan. What we wanna do over the next few months is take each of these eight challenges that we face and dream an alternative vision for the church as, in Augustine's language, the city of God, and then look at a practice that is specifically geared to habituate us away from the world and toward the kingdom as we continue to develop our rule of life as a church. For example, we wanna dream of a future church that is a community of tight-knit, loving relationships and a culture of individualism through the practice of community. A community of orthodoxy and a culture of ideological idolatry through the practice of scripture. A community of holiness and a culture of moral relativism through the practice of prayer and fasting. A community of peace and a culture of fear through the practice of silence and solitude. A community of peacemakers in a culture of political polarization through the practice of hospitality. A community of rest in a culture of exhaustion through the practice of Sabbath. 
a community of contribution and a culture of careerism through the practice of vocation, and a community of justice and a culture of social Darwinism through the practice of simplicity and generosity. And as we dream together, we want to invite you to review and refine your rule of life as we continue to work toward a church-wide rule. If you were not with us for the rule of life practice, which I think was fall of 2019, or if you were, but for any number of reasons you were not involved in the process, now is a great time to take a look at that. It's all at practicingtheway.org slash unhurry. You can download our rule of life workbook. We have something literally for you to work through. There's a bunch of teachings in there that give you way more kind of coaching and background and theology and, and kind of steps. And now is a great time to do this because so many of us got off of our rule of life in COVID and out of rhythm and like way more on the internet and all of that. And so really now we have to, as we come back together, we have to like kind of rehabituate around how do we follow Jesus together? How do we like move through crisis and survival to like a kind of a new normal of apprenticeship to Jesus and kind of really sync back up with the Spirit's invitation in our heart? But listen, an aspirational teaching series, I hope it is that, and even a rule of life are still not enough to move us from anxiety to possibility. As I see it, we need three things in order to become the future church. One, it goes without saying, we need a radical recommitment to Jesus as Lord. If this doesn't happen, everything that we do is just gonna annoy you, right? And me too, right? We have to have that, where we, get, we have to give up these foolish, dare I say even demonic attempts to be a progressive Christian or a conservative Christian or an American Christian or any other adjective before the word Christian that is an attempt to mix the world with the way of Jesus. And we have to instead just offer all that we are, starting with our identity, over to God. We need a fresh wave of surrender to Jesus as Lord, not just as our Savior, not just as our ticket away from the bad place, but as our Lord and as the King of all creation. The ancient spoke of an inner flame of the Holy Spirit in each of us. St. John of the Cross in the 16th century in Spain called it the inner flame of love. And they said that all of us have a choice on a daily basis whether to either dampen and smother and pour water on that flame or feed it and breathe life into it and let it consume our heart with a burning zeal and passion for God. It is time for the church to come back to her first love. Some of you need to start with a radical reorientation and dare I say it, a repentance and a coming back to Jesus as Lord. Then too, we need a radical recommitment to Jesus as the way. Not just the way to die, but the way to live. We need to let that monastic heart rise in each of us and craft a way of life together that will set us up to flourish and thrive in the corrosive soil of secularism. The old ways of doing church and following Jesus, where you just kind of come on Sunday, maybe every other week, and maybe if not, you catch the podcast, and maybe you're in a community if it's convenient, and maybe you read the Bible, but maybe it's more like you follow the Bible on Instagram. That, that is just not going to cut it. That is not going to cut it. What's the recent stat? The average millennial consumes something like 3,000 hours of content over the course of a year, and only 150 of them are at all Christian. That will not work. 
right? And I'm not saying content consumption is the way that we stay Christian. I'm just saying, like, we have to have something that is stronger. What's that Bonhoeffer story, if you don't know this, where somebody came out to Finkenwald. Uh, you know, Bonhoeffer came from money. He was a professor. He was educated. And he went off and went crazy and just started, like, training illegal pastors, you know? And somebody of means, a family friend, if I understand the story correctly, was sent out basically to bring him home and say, come back to your senses, come back to Berlin, come back to your teaching post. What are you doing out here in the middle of nowhere, what's now Poland, training pastors at this little rural hut, basically? And he was quiet, and he put his friend in a rowboat, rowed across the lake Finkenwald was on, took him up this hill, up this rise, and on the other side was a Nazi camp, and there were Hitler youth training. And he pointed to Finkenwald, the seminary, and he said, this must be stronger than that. That's the heart. This right here, our church, our way of life together, our discipleship to Jesus must be stronger than that. I don't mean that in the big bad world. I'm not saying Portlanders are Nazis. Don't email me. I'm saying it must be stronger than secularism's tidal force. We have to have a way of life that is robust, that is built around Jesus as the most important thing in our life. We're not the only church doing this. Friends, other churches all around the world that we're in relationship with are doing this very same thing. As you revisit your rule of life or just as you take a long, hard look at your discipleship for the coming season, now is a great time to ask, Jesus, what are you inviting me into in this coming season? What's the next step? For me, it means getting up earlier than I want to in this next season to beat my family up for quiet prayer and a daily type of prayer for me that's a daily practice of just kind of letting go of my attachments in order to find a deeper center of peace in God and learning to live from that kind of below-the-surface place of peace. What is it for you? Third, Last but not least, we need a sweeping renewal of the Holy Spirit across our church, across the American church, across the Western church, across the church of Jesus. It's happened before in the least likely of times when people thought the church was finished. Do not buy the false narrative that the story of the church in America is one of slow decline over time. The data does not back that up at all. It's more of an ebb and a flow. Our friend Mark Sayers has that great metaphor of the tide comes in and it comes out. Right now, the tide is out. None of us feel great about the church in America right now. So much compromise right now. So much failure, so much idolatry, so much Lord Jesus have mercy on the church in our country. Our only hope is a sweeping move of God. Do it again, God, do it again. This is why our prayer is to end Psalm 80. That's why I read it this morning and why I've been praying it over weeks now. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Would you just take a deep breath? And then would you, even those of you watching from home, would you pray that with me? Revive us and we will call on your name. Out loud. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. One more time from your heart. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us 
that we may be saved.